Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. My co-host Joe is still out on parental leave. So today I'd like to present a brand new interview episode Today's guest is Dr. Joel Berger. He's a senior scientist for the Wildlife Conservation Society, as well as a professor at Colorado State University. He has decades of experience exploring biological diversity around the world and is author of several books, including Extreme Conservation, Life at the Edges of the World from 2018. Most recently, he was an author on the paper Species Conflict at Earth's Edges, Contests, Climate, and Coveted Resources, published last month in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution. So we'll be discussing that study, its findings, as well as some broader issues in biodiversity and conservation. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Hi, Joel. Welcome to the show. Rob, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me in. You bet. So for listeners who are not familiar with you or your work, how did you initially become interested in conservation biology, and where has your work taken you over the decades? So I grew up in L.A., and that would not be Louisiana. It was the L.A. on the West Coast, and a lot of people, a lot of chaos, and I found um, some respite out in the deserts and the mountains, 100 miles, 200 miles out. So gradually growing up, I spent more time away from people. Um, and that always felt somewhat invigorating. Um, and since then, I've spent um, what I like to call uh, the different edges of, of the planet. And so that would be the highest latitudes where land hits sea up in the Arctic, the lowest of latitudes, which is down in the Patagonia ice fields, where we drop almost to the, uh, well, basically to Antarctic, but I'm on land in South America. And then what's called the third pole, so north, south, and then what's referred to as the third pole would be the mountains of Central Asia, which rise to you know, 29,000 some feet. So why are extreme environments so crucial uh, to these studies, especially so far as the, you know, the impact of climate change is concerned? So we know that Earth's atmosphere is warming, and certainly at the edges of the planet, it's warming anywhere from two to five times faster than it is at the midsection. 
And so when we think across the realm of environments, if we want to gain some insights into what's going on most rapidly, it is these extreme edge environments. And I tend to focus on the unsung species mostly that occur in these places, not species like elephants or rhinos or lions or tigers or even whales, but species that don't have much advocacy for them. Now, I know that the, the list of, uh, of organisms that you've, you've studied over the years is, is pretty, pretty long. What are some examples of some of these, uh, these creatures? So some of the ones that might be slightly better known, so I'll go from slightly better known to those that are lesser known. Um, so muskox would be one, and they're um, up in the Arctic, and they're, uh, they used to roam with woolly mammoths. Woolly mammoths didn't survive. Muskox have long hair that drapes to um, essentially to their feet and helps to sustain them throughout these long winters. So muskox would be one from the very north. Um, over in the Himalayan realm, you have a species called Takan, which are Bhutan's national mammal. They go up to 17,000 feet. They have the, the remarkable distinction of being preyed on by tigers at low elevation at three or 4,000 feet. And then up high, snow leopards can take some of their young and attack. So they have the duality of a challenge, tigers and snow leopards. Um, if we drop down into the edges of the far southern tips of, uh, Chile and Argentina, the Chilean national mammal are called huemol, and it's the most endangered large mammal in the Western Hemisphere, large, uh, and they're a type of a deer, but they have a mountain goat niche, and so they live in the shadows of glaciers, usually cliffs and very rugged terrain. So those are some examples. Um, I've also worked with black rhinos in the Namib Desert. I've worked with caribou a little bit in the Arctic. Um, I've worked, uh, one of my students is working with what are called large antlered munchaks, which is one of the most recently discovered large mammals in the 1990s in the Annamite Mountains of Vietnam. And so a number of these species don't have much of a vocal uh, backing. A, a, another one are called saiga, which occur in Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and their populations um, the ones in Mongolia are listed as an endangered species. I've also worked with wild yaks up on the Tibetan plateau at 16, 17,000 feet. So lots of these things are, are either threatened or endangered, but many of them are not known to the general public, whether we're talking about the public in their host countries or certainly in uh, the North American or U.S. public. Now, the, the saiga, is that, is that uh, the one that has a very unique nose or snout? Yeah, that's great, Rob. Yeah, yeah. Psychos look like part camel, part moose, and part antelope, and they're quite <laughs> fast and speedy. And yeah, they've got these amazing proboscis um, that just hang down and wobble. <laughs> now, uh, I, I want to come to the, the, the study here that uh, I think we're, we're mostly going to be talking about here. Species conflict at Earth's edges, contest climate and coveted resources. This was published last month in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution. Can you introduce us to the extreme environment that uh, uh, where this takes place and the species observed in the fieldwork? So amongst the iconic and not so frequently seen uh, large mammals, again, in mm -hmm. uh, Western North America are mountain goats, which are not even a goat. They're really a goat antelope, which are more related to the real antelope that we have over in Africa. But so those are mountain goats, but they live on cliffs and very steep terrain. They have white, long fur, and are a cold adapted species. Also, the additional or the other species in which we were witnessing direct interactions between the two were called bighorn sheep. Bighorn sheep are like sheep, big, round, thick horns in the males, smaller, little pointy uh, horns in the females. And the places where we were working on these stem from Colorado, uh, the Colorado Rockies up to about 14,000 feet along about a 1,500-mile gradient that puts us into central Alberta and Canada, um, areas to the north of Banff and Jasper. And those are a little bit lower elevation, only at about, um, um, we'll just say at a lower elevation. Across the realm of where we were working on these species, we focused mostly 
on a population in Glacier National Park. But we also worked at a pl- in Alberta, also in Colorado. Areas above treeline is where we were doing our observations. And this came about, I was working with another biologist named Forrest Hayes and another one named Mark Beal. Forrest is at Colorado State University, giving credit where credit is due. Mark Beal is a biologist for the National Park Service in Glacier. And we were looking for grizzly bears and using a spotting scope and looking above treeline because you don't have trees and so it's easier to spot animals. And we kept seeing these white dots and we were doing our observations from about a mile, mile and a half away, looking at white dots and those were mountain goats. And at about the same time in 2019, we also saw gray dots and these were bighorn sheep. And one was moving across the mountains from the left to the right, and the other one moving from the right to the left. And it looks like a collision path. And then they got to these brown, wet soil areas. And that was when we thought, hmm, this is going to get interesting. I wonder what's going to happen. Both these goats, the mountain goats and the bighorn sheep, are approximately similar in size. So we didn't know what was going to happen. And so... As these animals were moving towards these wet, grayish spots, we noted that the goats were eating soil and the bighorn sheep would approach, but if a goat got aggressive, the sheep would move off. And so we thought, oh, that's interesting. We did that a little bit that day. Forrest uh, Hayes and I, who were working together, molded over and we decided the next day we were going to go back up to these high alpine zones and again look, and we saw more sheep, more goats. And this went on for a couple of weeks across a couple of different years, actually across three different years. And in Glacier National Park, it was becoming clear to us, in part because we're both scientists and we're familiar with the literature and some climate change underpinnings. And we knew that these areas had been under snow and ice and glaciated not that long ago. In fact, Glacier National Park in the last hundred years has lost about 85% of its glaciers. So this area where we were watching sheep and goats, we were speculating that these animals were using areas that had been, well, they had to have been under ice and snow because glaciers were there. And precipitating out were minerals. And these would be salts, these would be sodium, it would be potassium. And the goats and sheep were interacting over priority of access. And this these weren't bloody encounters nature, tooth red and claws, Tennyson had said over 120 years ago, but they were displacements and they were either passive, meaning an animal walks toward another and they leave, or they were aggressive, active, in which an animal was swinging its head, lowering its horns, or maybe doing some rush charges at the other species. And at the end of the day, we had more than about 120 interactions, about only seven or eight, I think it was seven in Colorado, where we saw them actively at the same site at the same time, Uh, about a hundred or so up in Glacier, and then another almost 20 uh, in the Canadian site. And what struck us was the consistency. And what I mean by consistency is this. Goats won something like 98% of the interactions. The sheep just moved off. They didn't want to deal with it. Goats have small pointy horns, but it may be that the goats just don't give good signals. They just escalate real fast and the sheep wanted no part of it. Because the the bighorn sheep, if if, if my my childhood memories of watching um, uh, nature documentaries uh, are correct, I mean, they're they're pretty fierce looking when you see them uh, engaging with each other in combat. Uh, so it, I, I imagine it would be easy for at least those of us who are not experts in this to assume that they could more than hold their own against uh, a mountain goat. The sheep rear up. They have these club-like horns. I mean, almost like big, thick hammers, you know, mm-hmm. the size of one's chest, maybe half the size of one's chest. Don't want to be exaggerating here. But they uh, rear up and then they charge, sometimes reaching 20 to 30 miles an hour, and they slam into each other's horns and then they reverberate. And so we were expecting, you know, given that they're about the same size, well, if everything else is equal, about half the interactions we expect the sheep to win, half the goats to win. 
people who know something about domestic goats, they just laughed at us and said, <laughs> what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> we knew that. And I'm thinking to myself and actually saying, well, you know, I've spent three decades looking at these animals in these extreme environments, including sheep and goats. And I didn't know it. And so maybe scientists don't, uh, are not always the prescient ones in this. But our data were very, very clear because lots of times there's nuance, lots of times there's some counterintuitive results, and we didn't expect this to happen so consistently, and it did across the three sites. Now, now, first of all, are, are, are both the bighorn sheep and the mountain goats in these scenarios, in these encounters, are they both native to the regions, or, or, or is there an invasive uh, uh, layer to this? Yeah, real good question, Rob. Um, so bighorns are native from essentially parts of north central Canada, nor uh, central British Columbia, all the way down into the deserts of Mexico. So they have a, a very catholic range, meaning that a wide range of tolerance, that they can occur in deserts, they can occur in mountains, they can occur in um, alpine zones. Mountain goats, on the other hand, are exclusively a cold adapted species. And so when Lewis and Clark first arrived here, we'll put it this way, um, their native ranges would have been from central Idaho, Montana, Washington, all the way up into Alaska and the Yukon in a small part of the Northwest Territories. So cold adapted, they occur in some of the coastal ranges of uh, Washington um, and certainly in Alaska. Um, but since Different fish and game agencies, states in the U.S., have introduced goats into places like Oregon, where maybe it's a little controversial because there's some arguments that they were once native there. But we know that uh, they've been introduced into Utah, introduced into Nevada, introduced into South Dakota, and introduced into Colorado and Wyoming. And that's where some of this gets interesting because different parks manage exotic species differently. The Tetons, for instance, instituted a program where they would uh, remove the shape of uh, the goats, which are in, introduced or an exotic species in the, in the Tetons. And so they were removed by harvest, by shooting. Uh, in the Yellowstone area, um, goats are not abundant in Yellowstone Park, but they're more abundant in the Yellowstone ecosystem. And the Park Service Yellowstone in particular has a different strategy than the Tetons, and it's more laissez-faire, just letting things go until they perhaps know more about it. Olympic National Park over in western Washington, goats were introduced there in the 20s, and they've been removed mostly by helicopter removal, so not lethal means, but non-lethal means. Now, what, are the, what were the reasons for introducing uh, the mountain goats to these areas? Goats were introduced uh, by fish and game departments for harvest. So like in South Dakota in the 1920s, they were introduced into the Black Hills. I don't remember the years at which they were introduced into Nevada. They were introduced into Colorado in the late 40s. Um, today, with a focus also on biodiversity, in, a, in addition to big game, there would probably be more studies done about potential impacts of introducing these large mammals. For instance, moose have been introduced into Colorado in the uh, early and mid-70s. It may have been the late 70s. And moose, of course, are riparian-dependent species, and so they affect willows, they affect cottonwoods, and they affect uh, neotropical migrant birds. But when these initial introductions occurred both for mountain goats, for moose, and some other species. Uh, there was far less attention on biological diversity and more is providing a resource for um, people either for uh, a trophy uh, animal management for bringing some trophies home or for meat, meat on the table. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. So in this scenario, again, we have, we have mountain goats, bighorn sheep, and the mountain goats are essentially out-competing for the same resource. And you mentioned that the that goat farmers and people familiar with the, with with goats who lived with goats were were not surprised that the goats were winning out here. And and it certain certainly brings to mind examples of um, invasive or feral domestic goats taking over various areas. I'm thinking specifically of like the Galapagos Islands. Is it what is it? Do you think about or, or what is known about like the the sort of nature of the goat? Like what is it about the goats? Um, either it's morphology or it's like tenacity like what why does it uh, why does it win out why does it seem to win out in these instances provocative question 
so one idea goes as following. Um, so, and I'm going to focus on, again, bighorn sheep and mountain goats. I'm talking about native species and not stepping aside because maybe we'll return to feral species. Or, okay. or So bighorn sheep have an array of ways at which they communicate and they're very visual. So they have a very diverse um, behavioral repertoire as to how they interact. Um, goats are part of a more primitive lineage and their ancestral origins are over into uh, Central Asia as are sheep origins and then further over into um, the Mediterranean or Mideast. But the goat lineage and the mountain goat lineage in particular, the species that are ancestral, they don't have a lot of behavioral diversity. They don't have a lot of signals. Um, and so they escalate very fast and the escalations are with their horns, either a thrust, a head low, a rush. And I'm not sure, and people haven't looked at this. And so this is either wild hypothesis telling to fit with stuff to blow your mind, or it's um, uh, maybe some speculate. Well, it is some speculations on my part, but without the potential for signaling and recognizing other signals, what we see is that the goats escalate fast. The sheep want no part of it. And, and I want to point out that these are for what we refer to as abiotic resources, those not of a biological nature. So when we talk about the competition and the behavioral or social interactions between bighorn sheep and between with mountain goats, what we see is that the species are clumped around those dirt patches that I talked about, the moist soil. And this is... Um, again, um, referred to as a mineral lick. And these are very patchy in distribution. Sometimes they may be 10 or more miles apart. So the animals go to great length to access these. And the goats just having a more aggressive nature, they don't mess around. And the sheep have somehow figured that out and they back off. So I know, I know this this probably brings to mind you know, salt licks and, and so forth with some of our, our, our listeners, but uh, for many others, we might, might might be surprised to hear about this conflict over things that are, are not food, that are not uh, uh, a, a biological resource. So how how rare is this in general, abi- abiotic resources being feuded over uh, by organisms? Uh, how rare is it in human observation, and how rare do we think this sort of thing is in the wild? So... Um our paper, which you did refer to, and thanks for referring to that, we focused on four abiotic resources, which I'll describe in a moment. Actually, I'll describe them now. We focused on shade, because if one's ever watched a dog or a cat or a horse or a cow or a domestic goat, it's getting warm. The earth is warming up. Shade's an important way to try to adjust one's thermal uh, abilities to regulate. Um, so shade was one. Snow patches, which are disappearing at a more rapid rate at high elevation, is the second one. Mineral licks are a third one. And at the outset, when I had mentioned we were working at the extreme edges of the planet, you think about deserts. So the fourth abiotic resource are water holes, springs in the desert, which of course are important because many species need water, not all. So our four abiotic resources we selected because they're discrete and we could measure them. When is shade available? Are there no shade trees? If there are shade trees, can we observe interactions between different species for accessing shade? Do larger species win? Same for water in the deserts. You know, we have, I mentioned, and you mentioned, Rob, uh, domestic goats getting loose, becoming feral. And we have certainly in the American West, thousands and thousands of feral horses and feral burrows, and there are feral pigs. And so our interest was trying to understand the nature of interactions for these very limited resources, what we're calling coveted resources. So mineral licks at high elevation, uh, water in deserts, shade, uh, we were able to observe a few interactions, and those were mostly over in the Kalahari Desert and the Namib Desert, where rhinos displaced some antelopes. But we only saw that those interactions very few times. You had asked earlier, how rare is this doing these kind of observations? I think we got lucky. 
and at the outset, I said we were looking for grizzly bears. And so there was a lot of serendipity to what we were doing. But science has a lot of serendipity, just like all of us as humans. It's like, which is the path we pick? There's serendipity. Going back, though, to minerals at high elevation and the conflicts that we were watching between sheep and goats, at some level, as the climate is changing and warming, we see parts of the Arctic where surface the surface structures are being exposed now because we no longer have ice and permafrost. And so the same kind of patterns that we are watching for sheep and goats are not that different, perhaps, than what we're seeing with the eight countries that have access to the Arctic Ocean and Arctic resources. And we know Russia has, over the last 10 years, either reconstituted or built new military bases in places where they, they didn't exist in the past or fortified those. China now has a cruiser, uh, icebreaker that they use in the Arctic, even though they're not an Arctic country. And so thinking about mineral resources and access and conflict, um, maybe there are some lessons that could be learned from sheep and goats. However, the good thing about the sheep and goats is that they're not killing each other over this stuff. I'm not sure I want to think forward ahead at the next 50 years what we might be doing with those resources as humans. So do you think that this, uh, this, this scenario, this conflict over the resources, like we can sort of, um, we can hold it up kind of a mirror uh, to, to, to human activities and, um, and how we fit into the, um, in, into the natural world and its resources as well? So I'm going to answer at two levels. I'm going to point out first and foremost that our observations were over different species competing for a limited resource. And so that is referred to as interspecific or differences mm-hmm. between species competing. For the um, drawing in the analogy for humans, we have certainly different geographies as humans. We live all over the world. We have different cultures. We have different belief systems, but we all have the same fundamental needs. It's usually security, it's food, it's mates, it's shelter. And so as we continue moving beyond the 8 billion that we're at now, it's inevitable that we're going to end up competing at some level for some of the same resources. I mean, obviously, even though I'm looking now within species and not between, the same patterns, the same competitive interactions at one level, whether it be combat, whether it be bluff, whether it be escalation or de-escalation, we see the same things within species of other non-humans, or we also see this between species. Fascinating. Yeah, I know that some of the uh, I saw some of the coverage that came out about this study was even referencing Mad Max, saying that this is like it's um, it's sheep and goats, but but Mad Max. <laughs> uh, there's some pretty cool analogies in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People have had some fun with it, and um, I mean, we have enough challenges in the world having some fun, even though. I believe I'm a serious scientist. Actually, I know mm-hmm. I'm a serious scientist. But being able to laugh at oneself, being able to you know ha- try to appreciate the humor or the similarities or the differences, I think it's a good way to go. Oh yes, and and if it draws somebody in to to look at a, a study that someone who might not otherwise uh, you know f- f- be interested in it, then all the better. Yeah, just thinking about shade, if I can go a little bit further. So there have been studies done in Africa of of both primates, uh, some chimpanzees, certainly elephants, using shades um, to either access minerals or sometimes for cooling. And as far as I know, and I could be wrong, I'm wrong all the time, but as far as I know, um, we don't know if, in fact, shade use in these caves results in one species being displaced by another, um, you know, maybe setting up some camera traps and people are now starting to do that. We may have some better, uh, better insights into those kind of interactions. But for the time being, you know, for um, my colleagues, Mark and Forrest Hayes and I, uh, it's been observational, even though we use camera traps and other things that we do. Yeah, it's, it's, this, is, uh, this is so fascinating. And the whole, uh, all the details too about, um, like communication between the, the sheep, communication between the goats, and then this kind of communication breakdown, and therefore, and then escalation by the goats uh, because they are these are not uh, species that are going to normally be in any kind of robust communication with each other, right? 
Yeah, you know, I kind of think about it in the way that, um, and maybe some of uh, your listeners will be able to think about how cats and dogs respond to each other. And mm. sometimes, you know, dogs will have a different, I mean, even within breeds of dogs, there are different kinds of communication systems. And so maybe a cat's not going to be reading a dog and the dog has a certain intent or vice versa. Sometimes the signals are pretty clear. Sometimes they're not. For us with the sheep and the goats, maybe not as clear. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Now, in your long career documenting different organisms and different environments around the world, and we, uh, we, we listed some of them earlier, what sort of perspective on the threats facing the natural world have you been afforded? Like what, uh, you know, what, 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 what kind of vantage point has it given you? So I've, I've worked both in um, places that are very remote and then places that are less remote. And in the less remote places, the challenges are mostly how we don't destroy habitats or how we maintain habitats, trying to understand the extent to which restoring species if they've been lost can be a good idea. But the word conservation means people and it means attitudes. And so there's a lot that has to go on involving people and our ability to be tolerant or to think that we're not the only species on the planet that may be deserving uh, opportunities to live. And then in the remote areas, the challenges are very different. There are climate challenges as we watch the edges of the planet come, uh, come under a lot of um, greater variance with storms. Well, just like we see in Florida or the East Coast or the West Coast, we, we're certainly seeing that at the edges of the raw edges of the planet as well. We have gas, we have mining, we have mineral exploitation. A lot of that makes some sense. Um, but the question really comes down to what do we want the future to look like? What do we want 10 years from now? Can we project out 20 or 30 years? And if we can, how do we make that happen? Who has to get on board? So thinking also about some of the challenges in remote areas and certainly areas beyond the U.S., one of the remarkable problems that people don't see very much is that there are a lot of feral animals out there. And I think about across the globe, we have something like 700 million dogs. And I think about dogs free roaming in places like the Tibetan Plateau. I think about dogs free roaming in the Gobi Desert and impacts on endangered species. I had mentioned Waymole, which is the most endangered large mammal in the Western Hemisphere, down at the tips of Argentina and Chile and in the Andes. Free-roaming dogs, feral dogs, not native, causing lots and lots of issues and problems. And there are a lot of cultural differences based on what societies we're in and how we view things. And so some countries choose a laissez-faire approach and won't touch it. And other countries um, will be pretty aggressive and say, let's give some of these native species a chance because they didn't evolve with dogs, a coursing predator, uh, a coursing feral predator. So, so lots of issues out there in terms of other kinds of challenges that are biological challenges that still fall back in the conservation realm. But would you say that we have, um, we have better tools at our disposal now to aid in these conservation efforts? Is it more about like public will or, or, or governmental will? I think when we consider like the three major challenges in the realm of natural resources, at least I look at three. Climate change, of course, is a huge one. A second one I will call biodiversity crisis because that goes to land degradation. It goes to you know, removing chunks of the planet. It goes to our plastic issues. But so I look at climate change as one. I look at biodiversity, and then I look at, we'll say, one health, one world, one health. With disease, we think about COVID, we think about Ebola, we think about these other challenges that emanate from wild species or could from wild species, but it's how we're treating the planet. And so your question is, do we have new tools? We certainly have much greater recognition of, of the issues. And then, of course, as we all know, as citizens of the planet, the challenges are how are we going to solve these and, you know, where are we making progress? And we are making progress in, in certain places. Uh, so where we're making some progress is stunning. And I wouldn't have thought of this about 20 years ago, but we're rewilding Europe. We've got brown bears coming back into places. We've got lynx that are colonizing and being put back into places. Uh, we've got wolves that are into Germany. We've got uh, 
an area the size of California that maybe has a couple of packs of wolves, I'm not sure. Italy has over 3,500 wolves with its 60 million people. Um, so we can look into Europe. In this country, black-footed ferrets were extinct in the wild. We've now got black-footed ferrets in a number of Western states, in, as well as in Canada, as well as in Mexico. Condors were extinct in the wild. We've now got condors in Northern California and Southern California. We've got condors in Mexico, condors in Utah, condors in Arizona. Uh, we've got, uh, although wolves are certainly polarized, if you go back to the 1970s, the only wolves that we had were in the northern uh, northern woods. Now we've got wolves uh, in many of the western states. Grizzly bears are expanding in Wyoming, expanding in Montana, expanding in Idaho, in Washington. And so, you know, we can we can go with birds. We can, you know, pick a, a wide array of different species. And we're looking at lots of successes. And that's because the people demand it. And that's one of the nice things that we see. And for much of this, it's not even a partisan issue. We've seen successes because irrespective of political standing, people want biodiversity. They want healthy ecosystems. They want wildlife. Now, you're the author of several books uh, that have come out over the years, the most recent of which is Extreme Conservation, Life at the Edges of the World. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Sure. Um, so extreme conservation hits extreme environments and the species that live there, which must subsist. And so they have to have special adaptations. So this book works through 33 different expeditions that I did to different parts of the world. And so not just one or two, but also working with local people, learning from local people, listening to local people. And so, for instance, we once worked with this convicted felon who was a rhino poacher, and his sentence was three years on a conservation project. And so we learned from him. And subsequently, we brought him to the U.S., to learn from us and he exported and he's now back in Namibia and he's leading an NGO, non-government organization. We worked with a fellow named Freddie Goodhope Jr. He had a lot of fun with me. He would say, Joel, my ancestors and I have been here for 10,000 years. You're a newcomer, but we'll keep you warm and make sure you're safe up here in the Arctic. And so <laughs> I weave through dealing with the, uh, the people who I've learned from and how they have perceived and their injustices that have come their way and their successes. But then also the challenges that we faced as conservation biologists and the magnificent work that's being done in other places. I spent some time on a Russian island called Wrangel Island where I was arrested by Russian security forces. But the Russian scientists I work with didn't want me arrested. They wanted to work with me in the field. We had U.S. government and Russian money to look at science, uh, to look at climate change and how to do conservation. And so just like in this country and elsewhere, people are people. And my book tries to deal through the eyes of animals, but then through some of the learning that I've done and the challenges of what it takes to have cold feet on the ground working in some of these places that can be quite brutal. Excellent. So, uh, Joe, for our, our, our listeners out there, if they want to follow you, if they want to learn more about you and your work, uh, where can they go online? Uh, they, they could go to my website. And so it's just all the same, um, lowercase, joelbergerconservation.com. No spaces. joelbergerconservation.com. No spaces. And actually, the no spaces just means no spaces. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I greatly appreciate you taking time out of your day to chat with me here today. Uh, this is this is all fascinating, uh, and I, I, I know our listeners will greatly enjoy this. Rob, thanks, and stuff to blow your mind. What a great show you have. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Joel Berger for taking time out of his day to chat with us. Again, the study is Species Conflict at Earth's Edges, Contests, Climate, and Coveted Resources. The book is Extreme Conservation, Life at the Edges of the World. And you can check out his website at joelbergerconservation.com. That's J-O-E-L-B-E-R-G-E-R, conservation.com. 
That's it for this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Just a reminder that our core episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there about this uh, episode, past episodes, or future episodes. Uh, So feel free to get in touch with us. Thanks, as always, to Seth Nicholas Johnson for producing the show. And if you do want to reach out, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. Play.